and welcome to the Fun Kids Bookworms podcast. My name is Bex and I love books. And on the way, we've got quite a lot of them to tell you about. We'll be recapping Read, Scream, Repeat. We'll be chatting about Glassborn with Peter Bunzel. But first, it's Jack Meggett Phillips talking about the Beast and the Bethany, Child of the Beast. Now, Jack Meggett Phillips is a pal of mine. He's got his newest book in the series, Beast and the Bethany, called Child of the Beast. Uh, This is the fourth one in the series. And this time, there's more to the beast than meets the eye quite literally. Let's find out a little bit more. Hey Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, grand, thank you. I'm constantly impressed by your output because you're onto your fourth book of your Beast and the Bethany series. Is that right? That's right. I just keep on vomiting them out. It's, uh, yes, no, I, I love spending time in the world of the Beast of the Bethany. So as sort of uh, very tragic as it sounds, it almost feels like visiting friends every time I come to write a new book with these characters. I can see that. I mean, I feel like that when I'm reading your books as well. Um, now, the fourth one is called Child of the Beast. Uh, if we haven't read the first three Bethany books, uh, where do we find her? How, how do we find Bethany, Ebenezer and the Beast? So basically, the whole Beast and the Bethany series is about this young 500-year-old, this hungry beast, and a rebellious prankster named Bethany, who may or may not be about to be eaten. In the first book, we meet this man named Ebenezer Tweezer, who keeps a beast in the attic of his mansion, and he feeds this beast all manner of things, everything from king cobras to the crown jewels. And in return, the beast vomits out presents and potions which keep Ebenezer young, beautiful, and fabulous. But then, one day, the beast grows ever greedier and demands to be brought a juicy child to eat, and that's where we meet Bethany. In this latest instalment, The Beast and the Bethany, Child of the Beast, there is a new beast in town who's going to crawl out of the beast's belly and cause complete havoc in the neighbourhood. Meanwhile, Bethany is about to learn the truth about herself and where she comes from in the worst way possible. I mean, that was a perfect explanation. Uh, I love that. So yes, the beast becomes a daddy-mummy master uh, (laughs) by some kind of, well, vomiting situation. The beast creates a child. Yes, it sounds utterly bizarre, but the beast has been around for centuries and it spent all those centuries being basically the most despicable dribbler in the universe. You know, it spent most of its time eating poor defenceless chandeliers and, and other some other creatures. But at the beginning of this book, there's a bit of a change in the dynamics between the characters because the beast has decided it wants to be good and it comes upon a brilliant scheme where it decides it's going to vomit out all the evil in its body, every sort of piece of anger, every piece of cruelty. So it vomits it out, and then it surprisingly, it takes the form of this small, grey, lumpy egg, and then this egg begins to boil and hiss, and then what cracks out is a child, a child of the beast. And so the beast has to deal with, you know, being a mummy-daddy master to this uh curious, rather angry piece of vomit. The child actually gets even worse than the beast in this book, even more terrifying because there's no limits and no control on the child. Exactly. I mean, one of the things I love most about being an author is writing villains. And I feel, you know, I feel terribly embarrassed whenever I meet with other authors and they're all talking about, oh, you know, I want to write to tackle important issues. I want to write because, you know, I want to describe the beauty of the moonlight. And I'm there going, well, I just like writing because I, I like, you know, doing evil laughs and coming up with evil schemes to take over the world. So in this book, The Child of the Beast was such a fun villain to write because it's completely uncaged. It's got no barriers. So all its evil schemes, it doesn't even have a sort of blink of hesitation about doing them. 
I can see what you mean about liking writing villains because it, all the characters, to certain extents, have a a kind of villainous streak to them. I mean, you know, Bethany, obviously the beast, the child, even Ebenezer isn't golden, would we say? I also think it's much easier and much more likable if a character has flaws. I think sometimes some of the temptation is when you're writing a hero is to think, okay, I'm going to think of all the things that the hero is good at. I'm going to say that my hero is brave, uh, dashing, charismatic, and all that sort of thing. And you think, okay, if I make them like this, they're going to be really likable. Whereas when I, as a reader, I find myself much more drawn to people who have got flaws but are working on them. So that's why, you know, the two main characters, Bethany is this prankster who has to deal with the fact that she'd rather, you know, be telling people to bog off than doing nice things to them. While Ebenezer is an incredibly vain man who, instead of doing good things, would love to be parading around in his waistcoats or taking bubble baths that go on for a few hours. So, so yeah, whenever I'm writing any character, I'm always more interested in thinking, what is their problem? You know, what, what's the slight flaw that'll draw people to them? And uh, Bethany's flaw, well, she's trying to improve. She's trying to get better. She's trying to be good, which is something the Beast kind of notices as well and does think, you know what, maybe it's possible. Bethany is also such a fun character to write because she is both the Beast and the Bethany. They're almost like walking plot. You know, you can leave them in any sort of room and they will make something very bad happen. So quite often when I'm writing a book, I like trying to go to different places and think about what would my characters do if they were in this situation now. So if I'm going to have, you know, like a, a hot chocolate in, in my favourite coffee shop or something, I'm thinking, what? Well, how would each of the characters react? So I think, well, Bethany was, would, of course, try and do some sort of prank. Maybe she'd put worms in someone's, you know, milkshake or something like that. Ebenezer would probably be too busy inspecting his own reflection in the teaspoons, while the Beast would probably be wanting to eat everything, including the coffee tables and probably some of the staff as well. And what was it like writing about Bethany's past? Because did you have did you have a plan in your head about uh, what story you wanted to tell, or did they just come to you th- through the series as you were writing it? When I wrote the first book, you know, I, I sort of wrote it thinking, "Gosh, this is such um, a mixture of mischievous and silly and a bit scary places." I thought, "Well, if any, I'd be very surprised if anyone wants to read this, you know, aside from my own grandmother." But then once they sort of said they'd like a series. I immediately knew that I wanted to sort of explore Bethany's past. And it felt very strange writing this book in particular, because it's something I've been building up to throughout the whole series. So writing scenes that you've had in your head for, you know, months upon months on end and thinking, gosh, I'm actually here. It, it just felt like a, a surreal, but rather and sort of very pressured moment. But I'm actually really happy with how it came out. So I hope that readers enjoy finding out about, you know, uh, the past of the Bethany. Oh, they absolutely will. I So I love this series, as, as I hope you know, Jack, and I read the book. I don't want to spoil it for, for listeners, so I won't say too much, but I was like, I think I think I know what's going to happen in this one. I think I can figure it out. And then I absolutely didn't. And I was like, I love it. I love that I had no idea. And I thought I did, but I didn't. It was It's such a fun and engaging read, especially finding out more about Bethany's past. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank, thank you very much. That, that, that means a huge amount. I mean, yeah, I, also with every book, I get to know the characters better. And so they sort of take more control over the story, which you know, at some times that's quite good. Sometimes it it's, feels almost like I'm working with some very uh, diva actors or something. You know, it, back in the first book, in The Beast and the Bethany, I was in reasonable control of, of Bethany and I could ask her to do certain things. But now we're on to the child of the beast. She is sort of 
almost writing through me. She's sort of, it's almost like she's coming to me and sort of demanding, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I want to do this, that, the other. So a part of my job as a writer and part of the fun and occasionally frustration is just sort of giving over control to the characters and just following them to see where their stories are going to go. Yeah, that seems about right for Bethany's character. I can imagine her taking over. And am I right in thinking you have another book in the series? Do you have like more and more stories still to tell? Well, I think I can reveal this. If I can't, then sorry, publishers, but I have just actually finished writing the last book in the series uh, last night. Wow. So I felt incredibly uh, emotional. So there's going to be a new book in the series, which, which should be out about Halloween next year. And it's going to be called The Beast and the Bethany, The Final Feast. Oh, my goodness. A little fun kids exclusives. We love it, Jack. Thank you so much for telling us all about The Beast and the Bethany, Child of the Beast. I, I love the series. I think it's really fun and creepy, but in a great way. And um, Jack, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much to Jack Meggett Phillips for telling us all about The Beast and the Bethany. Next up, we've got Peter Bunzel now. Peter came to the Fun Kids HQ to tell us all about Glassborn. It's set in a 19th century fantasy land, and this book has all of the things you'll need to sink into a new world with the Bell siblings and the magical adventures they get up to. Peter's here to tell us more. Hello, welcome back to Fun Kids. Hi, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been so long, and I think you've been a very busy man in the meantime. You've written lots and lots of books in the last few years, right? Yeah, this is my ninth book that we're talking about today, yeah. Ninth book. So, a lot of books. So I was wondering, do you get the process a bit boring, or do is it all still as exciting as it ever was? Yeah, it's still really exciting. It's still quite hectic, and, you know, you still get really into the story and the characters, and you get to write about new people and take them on new adventures, so it, it's always exciting to start something new, yeah. Yeah, and so tell us about your new book, Glassborn. We find the characters, the family, they've just lost their mum recently. So where do we meet them in their story? Um, yeah, so it's about four siblings, two brothers and two sisters, and they live in Georgian England, 1826, so a long time ago. And when we meet them, they're in a carriage in the woods, travelling through the woods with their dad, and they're going to their new home, which is called Fairy Keep Cottage, which is the house where their mum, who's passed away, grew up. And now her sister, Aunt Eliza, lives there, and they're going to live with Aunt Eliza. Am I right in thinking there's a Bronte connection with the characters? Yeah, there's a Bronte connection. Brilliant. So, yeah, I read Jane Eyre about 10 years ago and I really loved the book. And I was reading then about the history of the Brontes. And uh, there's quite a lot of uh, stories about them growing up and when they were kids. And they used to write stories about their own imaginary worlds, which were called uh, Glass Town and Angrier and Gondol. And the four of them had this kind of big imagination, all of these sort of crazy stories that they were writing together in little books. And I thought that was just a fantastic group of kids to write about the Brontes when they were young. So I started to write a story about them and I realised I would have to change it a little bit because I couldn't use their real life story. I wanted to make stuff up. So the kids in my book, they're sort of inspired by the Brontes and the Brontes childhood growing up, but they're um, slightly different. And then hence why you've, you've said it in 1826, right, I guess? Yeah, that was when they were kids growing up. And the house, Fairy Keep Cottage in the story, is really based on their real house, which is in Haworth, which is the Bronte Museum now. But it used to be um, Haworth Parsonage, where their dad was uh, the vicar of the town, basically. I and that see. was the parsonage there. But it's an amazing museum and it has lots of objects that belong to the Brontes. 
and to their parents and to Aunt Elizabeth, who was looking after them. So, yeah, lots of the objects in the house inspired objects in the story, basically. That's really cool. So what kind of objects can we look out for in the book that you think maybe listeners won't uh, won't clock until they've had this, um, heard this? So the Brontes, they had these toy soldiers, wooden toy soldiers that they would make stories up about. And they each had their favourite toy soldier and that they would write stories about that soldier. And so in my book, all each of the four children have a toy soldier that their parents have given them. And in my book, the toy soldiers are magic, so they help them do spells and these things in the story, yeah. And then the other thing that was a really big feature in the book was on the stairs at the Bronte house is a big grandfather clock, and it has a painting above the clock face of this girl in a red cloak, a bit like Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because in my first book, the prequel to this Glassborn, which is called Magicborn, the girl Tempest wears this red cloak. And so I thought, oh, this has to be in the story. And then when I was a kid, um, my dad had a grandfather clock actually on the landing of our house. Oh, right. okay. And when we used to play hide and seek, when I was very small, we used to be able to open the door of the grandfather clock and hide inside it. <laughs> and so when I was thinking about the book, I thought, yeah, one of the characters is going to do this, act and the boy hides inside the grandfather clock. And that opens a doorway to fairyland, a bit like in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when they hide in the wardrobe. So it was kind of inspired by all of these different things. Well, this was going to be where I went to next, actually. So Fairyland, how do you map out a place in your head? Do you kind of like draw it on a wall somewhere? Do you kind of like plan it out? Do you write notes and stuff like that? How does it work? First of all, when I was trying to come up with the geography of Fairyland, I drew a map and I drew quite a big map with lots of land and oceans. And then I realised this is quite too big for the story I told. So then I drew a slightly smaller map with less stuff on going on, but sort of so I could plan the route of where the children were going to go in the story. Mm -hmm. And that did inform the geography of the story and the the journey that they take, basically. So I'm going to be honest with you. I've never read Narnia. And this is a terrible thing to admit, but I'm I'm going to be honest with you between you and I. So tell me where the influence kind of matches in the book from the Narnia to your book. You've seen the movie, I've seen, right? I've seen the movie, okay. but the look of shock on your face, Peter, was, was genuinely don't, terrifying. But yeah, no, I've seen the film, I just haven't read the book. Okay. And I, I, did, I did gather that, yes, there were some parallels between... Yeah, so the, the main parallel is what, what I said. Like, in my story, there's this big grandfather clock in the children's bedroom of the house, and Acton, who's the youngest brother, climbs through the grandfather clock and gets kidnapped by these evil fairies and taken to fairyland. And in the Narnia story, um, Lucy, who's the youngest child in the story, sort of climbs through the wardrobe first and gets taken to Narnia. And so I wanted to sort of reference that. Also, at the start of Emily Bronte's book, which is called Wuthering Heights, one of the characters wakes up because there's a ghost tapping on the window. So I wanted to reference that as well. So when Acton wakes at midnight, um, he hears this tapping on the window and that wakes him up. And then he goes to open the clock. And that's when all of this terrible things happen and he gets sucked into fairyland it's like a book of easter eggs for people who yeah. are much better read than i am <laughs> i love it so tell us about the characters we meet in fairyland as well because there's also a, a big bad villain yeah the villain is the fairy queen and she was also inspired by narnia so she's inspired by the witch in the line the witch in the wardrobe and she basically turns all of the people that she doesn't like to sort of ice sculptures and so she's kind of evil and um, she wants to send acton on this quest to get the glimmer glass crown which is a magic crown She wants to send him to steal this crown from the King of the Deadlands so that she can rule all of the different kingdoms, magical kingdoms. What's it like writing a villain? Like, you've got some lovely characters in there, but a villain must be quite exciting to write. Yeah, I like villains. I think they're always fun. Like, um, my favourite kind of villains are like Roald Dahl-type villains who are a bit evil, but also kind of a bit quirky and funny and have some personality. So I like that in a villain. 
and I think it's important to get lots of different sort of quirky personality into your villain. Also, like, you do have some exciting characters that they meet in Fairyland, right? Yeah, so there's lots of different types of fairies. So they meet a troll, a big sort of troll made from rocks, who is a bit inspired by the never-ending story kind of trolls. And um, also they have to play a game of riddles with him, which is a bit of an sort of like the Hobbit, and they have to come up with these riddles and he has a glass eye they have to steal his glass eye so that they can escape from him stuff like that and then also there's these kind of mad hatters tea party type fairies who are having a big tea party in the woods and they have to sing a song with them and basically they get sort of captured by them as well and then there's um what else is there there's like a fairy who's like a little sort of hedgehog guy and then there's a crow fairy so there's all these different fairies yeah was there one particular scene in the book that you were writing where, because I've spoken to some authors and they're like, we have no idea what's going to happen sometimes. We just write and see where the characters take us. Was there a scene like that for you where you wrote it and just you didn't know where it was going to go? Or do you plan it really, really to the point? Yeah, there, was a, there were some scenes like that. There's a scene where Acton, as I said, has to go to the Deadlands to steal the crown from the Dead King and that he was going to play a game with the Dead King and that they were going to set riddles for each other. And so I didn't know what the riddle was going to be until quite a long way into the book. And then I had this really good idea for a riddle that would have two different answers so that he could sort of think that he's going to get it right but actually get it wrong and yeah that was quite cool when i came up with that idea that's quite exciting i love the idea that as you're going you kind of like find new avenues and new new stories within the story almost yeah i think that always happens like you get so far into the story and you sort of start to learn what the themes are and what's going to work really well in the story things that you wrote at the beginning you can bring them back in and put a little twist on them and that's always good when you come up with stuff like that that must be so satisfying to be like yeah i've brought it all back together and do you have i mean i know you probably won't say you do but do you have a favorite character of the four of the of the kids in the the book is there one in particular that you prefer i shouldn't say but probably acton is the youngest brother and he and cora are the narrators of the story Mm -hmm. but i think he's my favorite character because he probably has the scariest journey to go on you know yeah and the most fear to overcome in the story. And do we think we'll see them again? Will they be back? We've had the prequel, we've got this one, will we have another uh, Maybe. I'm actually writing a standalone book at the moment, but maybe I'll come back to them after that and see what happens to them. Oh, well, thank you so much for telling us thank all about you. it. Hopefully we'll get them back in our lives. Uh, Glassborn is out today, right now. Yes, right now. So congratulations, and uh, thank you for coming to tell us thank all about you. it. Thanks, Pegs. Now, I know Halloween is done and gone, but I think a lot of people still want some spook in their life. And Phil Hicks is here to tell us about this amazing anthology book called Read, Scream, Repeat. It's got 13 authors all sending in a brand new story. Authors like Elle McNichol and Joseph Kodo. And uh, this is not a book to be missed. So here's Phil to tell us more. It's been curated by Jennifer Killick, an author who many of you will know for her middle-grade horror comedy stories, including Crater Lake. And she's brought together 13 authors who are working in uh, middle grade today and tasked them with each writing a scary story for the spooky season. So you have 13 stories, all written very differently with different styles so it's interesting you know you can read one and then leave it and then come back and read another one and there's lots of different approaches to enjoy and you can see how the different authors have each approached telling a spooky story there are ghosts of course there are monsters there's a haunted video game there are shadow beasts there are zombies there are haunted dolls so there's everything you could possibly wish for in a spooky anthology. My story is called The Attic Room, 
and it's about a school trip to a stately home in the UK and uh, stately homes are often haunted and in my story this stately home is of course haunted too and for one student in particular it comes to a very sticky end. So if you feel like picking up something spooky and you enjoy reading middle grade and you enjoy reading different styles of story, then please feel free to pick up a copy of Read, Scream, Repeat. And I believe it's available in all the usual places where books can be found. Enjoy and don't have nightmares. Amazing stuff. Uh, thank you so much to Phil Hicks, to Peter Bunzel, and to Jack Meggett Phillips for gracing us with their presence in today's Bookworms. If you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to like, subscribe, and follow wherever it is you get your pods from. And I'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs>